This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we talk about all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp to the cringe through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So what are we talking about for this episode? Well, I thought we would go the classic route and talk about 1962's Day of the Trivet. Now, just to be upfront, this is going to be a bit of a lighter episode. It's an older film. There's a little bit less information, research around it, and it's just kind of light on the disability-specific content overall. Now, I am going to talk a little bit about the 1951 book that it is based off of. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the various adaptations of the story, just kind of mention them, and I'm going to give a little bit of background about the filmmakers, the director and the screenwriter, because I think there's some really interesting bits there as well. So a little bit more uh, going in that direction than just specific disability. Now, that said, there are a couple of very specific moments in the film that I do want to touch on that I think are really relevant to disability. So all of that up front, let's get into it and let's talk about Day of the Trivet. of the Triffids, when terror reigned from the sky. <laughs> the day of the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare. When the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates. Population is driven by fear towards insanity. The day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. It's going to be starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. And they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. You have never been married? No. Why? I guess I've never been in one spot long enough to get caught. 
And now you are settled with a family. It might have its point. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. <laughs> So I think a place to start is getting into the plot synopsis. And we're going to be, like I said, bouncing around a little bit, talking about, again, the adaptations and uh, all of that. But let's start with the plot of the film. A meteor shower blinds most people in the world and at the same time spreads triffid plant spores, which quickly become animated. Bill Mason a merchant Navy officer who has been lying in hospital overnight with his eyes bandaged is unaffected and leaves the next day. While at a railway station, he comes across an orphaned schoolgirl named Susan, who, having spent the night in the luggage van, is unaffected as well. He helps her escape the groping crowds, and they commandeer an abandoned car in order to reach his ship. On their way, the car gets stuck in mud, and while they look for stones to gain traction, a mobile triffid ambushes them, and they barely escape. Meanwhile, scientist Tom Goodwin and his wife Karen have been isolated in a lighthouse and only learn of the world emergency over the radio. Karen alerts Tom to a triffid growing on a ledge, and inside they discover another, and Tom has to battle it off. Though it appears dead, they discover that trivids can apparently regenerate themselves. The couple then barricade themselves in and set to work to discover some means of neutralizing the plants. After Mason and Susan finally make it to the dockyard, they only hear bad news from over the radio. They then cross into France, where they come across Christine Durant at a roadblock. She guides them to a chateau which is serving as a refuge for the blind. While looking for supplies at a grocery store with Mr. Coker, a worker at the chateau, they discover dozens of the plants, and Coker dies while they are returning to the chateau to warn the others. Later, the place is invaded by escaped convicts, and during the mayhem, Triffids move in and kill everyone except Tom, Susan, and Christine, who manage to get away in the prison bus. After discovering that Toulon is in flames, Mason next heads for the American naval base in Cadiz. On their way, they encounter a blind couple, Luis and his pregnant wife, Teresa, and they help her deliver a baby boy. Luis tells Mason that Cadiz base has been evacuated by submarine since those who were underwater didn't get blinded by the meteor shower. Mason gets uh, the radio transmitter working just in time to hear the Navy broadcasting a message about a final survivor pickup in Alicante the next day and a warning to beware of wandering bands of triffids. The group decides to leave early in the morning and Mason electrifies the enclosing fence around the villa during the night as a precaution. When the triffids arrive, the current is a bit too weak to hold them off for long, and Mason has to improvise a flamethrower from a fuel truck to keep them off. He also realizes that the triffids are attracted to sound, 
and so he decoys them the next day with a musical clown car while the others escape. He himself manages to attract the attention of a naval dignity. He picks him up and takes him to the submarine. Back at the lighthouse, the Triffids manage to break in while Tom and Karen retreat to the top of the stairs. In a last effort to hold them off, Tom sprays them with a saltwater fire hose and the Triffids begin to dissolve in a cloud of green smoke. Tom realizes that seawater was the answer they had been looking for all along and uses the hose to kill the rest of the Triffids in the lighthouse. At the end, our, narr our narrator states that humanity has conquered the Triffids by turning uh, to the very thing that gave humans life in the beginning, seawater. Meanwhile, the people from the submarine have disembarked and are heading up to a church to give thanks for their survival. I'm going to circle back to the film in just a moment, but I want to talk about the book. So the book, Day of the Triffids, or it's also known as Revolt of the Triffids, was published in 1951 and written by British sci-fi writer John Wyndham. It got lots of critical praise when it was released, and I would say is considered, uh, you know, pretty top tier in terms of Wyndham's work. It got praised by such notable writers as Carl Edward Wagner, who said it was one of the uh, 13 best sci-fi uh, horror novels ever written at the time. Arthur C. Clarke said it's an immortal story, but it also got a little bit of pushback too, saying it was a little safe and derivative, didn't really push a lot of boundaries. Now, John Wyndham may not be an author that's part of the cultural zeitgeist, but I do think it's worth noting that another work of his that you may be familiar with is uh, The Midwich Cuckoos, which would go on to be adapted as Village of the Damned. So I found that pretty interesting. And that was written or published in 1957. So that came after Day of the Triffids. But Day of the Triffids, Wyndham was very clear to cite H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds as a huge inspiration to him because that was often something that would come up in reviews, people saying that it was kind of a, a weaker version of War of the Worlds. And I think that they both kind of stand on their own merits. Now, I say this having not read the book, but just having watched the film... Um, I get a sense that the stories do have a fair number of things different. So I don't know if that's necessarily the fairest of comparisons. But he was very clear to cite that as being a huge, huge um, uh, influence. And in fact, Wells' working title had been, um, for War of the World, had been the Day of the Tripods. So... Um, you know, just lots of an influence there. The rights for the story were purchased by Albert Broccoli and Irving Allen in 1956. And Jimmy Sangster was hired to write the script. But he was 
quoted as being a little bit intimidated that he was going to be messing with Wyndham's novel. And later, that film never got made, and he said that he just didn't think that his script was very good. But fast forward to July 1962, and you get to the film that we're talking about today. So let's talk about it. The film, Day of the Triffids, is released in 1962, and it's directed by Freddie Francis and Stephen Seckley. To start with Freddie Francis, he was a British cinematographer and director who's probably most notable for his work that he's done with David Lynch, but he's been a cinematographer on a lot of really amazing stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously Lynch's stuff, but uh, Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear, Glory, um, just lots of stuff. Um, in terms of directing, um, he directed the 70s Tales from the Crypt, so pretty uh, substantial career. And um, there's some issues of uh, kind of his credit as director, um, I couldn't find a ton of information about, you know, how, you know, some places list him as kind of a co-director with Seckley, um, and some places don't, so I'm not exactly for sure what that's all about, but, um, he is officially kind of, uh, attributed with kind of co-directing Day of the Triffids. So then that gets us to Stephen Seckley. He was a Hungarian immigrant who uh, made a lot of films in Hungary and Germany as, uh, as far back as I think the 30s. And it's probably most known for the Hungarian comedy Hiplet the Butler, which is kind of a comedy of manners that is very renowned and uh, kind of revered in Hungary. So Seckley spent a lot of his career in Hollywood after fleeing pre-war Hungary. He also spent some time in Germany working and also made some films there, but spent a bulk of his career in Hollywood. Now he did return to Hungary in 73, um, to make, or it would have been 71 or two, to make his final film, The Girl Who Liked Purple Flowers, and it was released in 73, but he passed away in 1979 in Palm Springs, California. So, some interesting background on the directors. Now, let's switch gears to the screenwriter. Up until, I believe, 1996, the only credited writer, uh, screenwriter, I should say, because, of course, Wyndham was uh, always credited with the source material, but the only credited screenwriter for Day of the Triffids was Philip Jordan. He served as a front for uh, many blacklisted uh, writers at the time in, you know, the 40s through 60s. And I believe it was the late... 90s, I think 1996, when Bernard Gordon, 
who was a prolific writer, was actually given uh, retroactive credit for writing after Jordan, who also served as a producer, said, well, they just put my name on the script because Gordon was blacklisted. So, it, you know, my name had to be on the script. Some interesting uh, background I thought I would share. But let's get into some plot elements of the film. So the, the book and the film vary quite a bit. There's a main character. Now, as I mentioned, I haven't read the book. This is just based on kind of various uh, research. So there are characters, especially a main character that is omitted from the book, a location change, and the ending. Um, the ending of the book is much more akin to War of the Worlds. Uh, you know, they the survivors are continuing to survive, but they haven't defeated the Triffids. They're still a threat. And so it's definitely a change from the much more, I guess, saccharine, uh, for lack of a better word, ending of the film where you have the Triffids defeated and everyone goes to church. And I, I think that that's an interesting uh, kind of place to start in talking about some of the disability aspects because one of the things that I've mentioned in relation to some other films, I think maybe mentioned when talking about Carrie, this idea of science versus faith and how those theme, those two things butt heads, especially when you're dealing with fundamental belief systems. And so, you know, it's something that a lot of, I think, fans of the book kind of pushed back on when the film came out because it just kind of took... I think, a certain punch from the book. Another aspect, I think, to note about the plot is really, I think, some of the core structure of the events. So as I was going through the plot synopsis, it's a meteor shower that spawns the trifid uh, spores, and it also... Um, strikes everyone with blindness that watches the meteor shower. So in the book, these are not just meteor showers. These are actually man-made events and kind of man-made catastrophes, which then I think emphasizes completely different ideas and themes in the book. One of the things I think that struck me as I was doing some reading about this is that in the 50s there was this huge boom of kind of sci-fi horror you had the thing from another planet freaks um the blob the original um the original fly um just lots and lots of kind of sci-fi horror invasion of the body snatchers as well so and those are just a few. 
But I think it's dealing a lot with our anxiety around space. We are getting into the space race. And uh, NASA would go on to be formed in the late 50s, I believe. I think 1957. And so I think it could very well be, uh, you know, a piece of why some of this was changed just because of the ideas and, and things happening of the time and for it to kind of fit more neatly into some of those narrative devices. I think also, um, you know, the book really, uh, Wyndham really injected a lot of his experience serving in the British military during the Second World War and a lot of the kind of British politics um, and kind of commentary on that and uh, were were taken out because it needed to appeal uh, to, I think, a much wider audience. And so I think they thought a more uplifting ending, take away some of, you know, the uh, the political nature of what's happening and make it a much more contained story. I don't think that's necessarily a bad inclination. I think it makes it a much more straightforward and kind of clean cut, easy breezy type of film. But you can kind of understand where there is some pushback. The idea of faith versus science is something that is you know, a tale as old as time, I think, in a lot of ways. But it plays into a lot of medical science as well. This is why we have kind of anti-vax uh, sentiments, because people believe that, you know, our bodies work the way that they're supposed to work, and putting vaccinations or different kinds of medication into the body is toxic and not natural. And so to change a battle that's really about science and kind of these man-made constructs versus, you know, seawater being the answer to all the problems is an interesting one. And um, I think, again, it, uh, going to some of the criticisms of the film, I think it speaks to some of these changes. But let's talk more generally about the way that blindness is portrayed in this film. So everyone who views the meteor shower is blind the next day. And we say the next day because that's when Mason realizes what's happened. Uh, he's in the hospital after having ocular surgery and so his eyes are bandaged when the nurse and doctor in his room are looking out the window at the meteor shower so he literally cannot see it he even asked to get the bandages taken off a little bit early but they tell him no we're not going to do it early we're going to take it off tomorrow morning at 8 a.m at 9 a.m that morning when the doctor and the nurse don't come in and take off the bandages he takes them off himself and sees that the uh, hospital is in complete shambles and doesn't see anyone 
the doctor uh, finds him, comes up to him, and it's revealed that the doctor is blind. And so he has uh, Mason take him up to his office. They do a quick test to make sure, you know, uh, that the doctor is in fact blind, that there's no response. And then the doctor leaps to his death from his window. Uh, you know, in situations like this, disability is often, I mean, it's, it's a cataclysmic event. It's horrific. It's as close to being killed in a situation like this as you could get and you see people panicked, and certainly that would happen. But later on in the film, when we get to uh, Lewis and Teresa's home, we realize that Teresa was blind prior to the meteor shower. She's been blind for some time. And so, Mason makes a comment to her, to them because he doesn't realize that they're blind uh, at first. And uh, Lewis says, well, Teresa's been blind for some time. And so, you know, she's, she's kind of teaching me to, to adapt. And um, it's an interesting juxtaposition to the despair and the panic that everyone else is experiencing. And I guess the thing that sits with me about this at the end of the film is, you know, Lewis says it so simply, you know, my wife has experienced this and so I'm learning from her. She understands how to navigate this world in a different way and I'm I'm learning from that and I think it's unfortunate that it takes this event to be able to understand the value of other um you know other perspectives and to understand how the value of uh navigating situations and the landscape in in different ways and learning from each other, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's also a moment when they are still at the Chateau in France and there is this young woman there named Petunia and she has made her way. I, I think that Mason is outside uh, somewhere getting ready to go off somewhere and she finds him and he seems completely baffled by the fact that she was able to get from the chateau to where he was I think somewhere else on on the grounds and it just you know it's the it's the implied incompetence of oh well how in the world can someone be able to navigate uh, going from point A to point B if they don't have full sight? 
Well, people have done that. People will do that. It's an adaptive thing. And there's, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just something that really set odd with me in the film. It would be, I, I'm interested to go back and, and read the book now to see if it's, if I get any different feelings. I, it's just, it's really complicated to, to talk about. And I guess that's kind of why I wanted to do this episode because after watching it, I kind of thought like, well, do I go ahead and record? Because I really don't know specifically what my thoughts are on this because it's, it's just really complicated. It's, you know, you have disability being viewed as this apocalyptic and horrific thing that is um, as harmful as these carnivorous plants, uh, giving them, a, you know, a kind of a leg up in being able to kill folks. But I don't know. It's just really complicated. Um, and I say complicated. It's a, you know, a 50s, 60s kind of sci-fi uh, film that's a little bit light. So it's it's complicated in that way, I should say. I don't know. I hope I'm making sense. It's just my thoughts on this are really kind of confuddled as I try to piece it out. But... I do like the aspect of disability with Lewis and Teresa because I think it just shows the more normalized version, the more realistic version of, yeah, my wife is blind and this is, you know, this isn't a huge change for us. I'm learning from her and I'm, I'm able to get around myself because he saw the meteor shower and is blind now. So, um, she, Teresa also has a baby and it's just, you know, there's, there's that sense of like, oh yeah, well, of course this all seems standard and her disability isn't mentioned, um, again. Uh, so I don't know. It's just complicated. You've got the faith versus science, which translates into kind of faith versus medicine uh, argument, which has certain kind of ableist implications. You have disability as a catastrophic event where those that remain non-disabled or sighted have to come in and save the day, taking away, you know, any sense of autonomy from folks that would be able to manage and I yeah that's that kind of has some some icky feels to me but you know these are all just kind of my my thoughts and feelings and again disability isn't a monolith I'm not blind or visually impaired so um you know I can't speak from that experience but um, I don't know. It's uh, piecing apart the, the disability aspects of Day of the Trippids. I wasn't expecting it to kind of throw me for such a loop. But um, I do want to switch gears before I kind of end the episode and just mention some of the other adaptations of this because um, there's some other versions of this that may be worth checking out if the story seems interesting to you. 
Um, you know, outside of the book, there are some other versions that seem to be uh, perhaps more faithful to some of the elements of the book, specifically the ending. Um, and there are some versions that make even more substantial changes. So if the story itself seems like something interesting to you and you like that kind of sci-fi, then there are a number of different versions. I don't know how readily accessible many of these are because a lot of them are kind of radio plays. So I think the earliest one was from 1953 and that was from the BBC. Again, this is British, um, a British book. So of course, a lot of these are going to come from the BBC in the UK. So there were readings from as early as 1953. Uh, there were 30-minute uh, episodes, uh, I think six of them in 1957, which is kind of the first big radio play. And there was a second version of that in uh, 1968 and another kind of radio play in 2001. And there have been a couple other kind of smaller uh, versions adapted as well for radio. In terms of television, uh, there are two main kind of television series, both six episode, uh, 30 minute in length uh, kind of series. And one was uh, with the BBC in 1981. And the most recent one was in 2009, I think December. So lots of versions. I think in 2010, there was a Variety uh, article as I was perusing around and doing some research that referenced a, another version uh, being made or kind of starting production uh, in, in kind of the very early stages, initial stages, um, in 2010, but it didn't go anywhere, obviously. So, uh, who knows what, uh, what is kind of next. There are some sequels, uh, out there, uh, as well. Again, not sure how, Accessible, these are Simon Clark wrote The Night of the Triffids, published in 2001. Uh, and then author John Whitbourne wrote The Age of the Triffids in 2020. But I think it's unavailable outside of Canada and New Zealand. So you could have yourself a deep dive into the world of the Triffids if you wanted. I just thought it would be kind of interesting to highlight all of those various adaptations. But kind of going further with the adaptations, I do want to talk just momentarily about a couple of interesting references. So of course, with the film and the Triffids, the plants from another planet being defeated by saltwater, sounds pretty similar to In Night Shyamalan's Signs, which I'm, I think... I had read somewhere that he had mentioned it as a direct uh, kind of reference point, but, um, you know, something to note there. And also uh, that the opening scene with Mason in the hospital 
uh, where he's going around and he can't find anyone. That inspired Alex Garland to write 28 Days Later, uh, according to Danny Boyle. So I found that kind of interesting, too. I found that when, I think, poking around on Wiki. So, yeah, it's, it's had its impact. So, um, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Kind of a strange one, but I wanted to do something that was a little bit out of pocket in... Uh, you know, sci-fi horror, especially from this era, is not something that I necessarily always gravitate towards, but I always find it really interesting, and I think, you know, it's such, I think, 50s and 60s sci-fi horror is so fascinating when you see how it had such a strong resurgence in the very late 70s and 80s. Because a lot of the films that I referenced as being part of kind of that 50s uh, sci-fi boom went on to be remade in the 80s and uh, late 70s. You know, of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with the remake with Donald Sutherland. You've got the remake of The Fly, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, so, yeah, I just find all of that really interesting too, but... Yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up. So as always, uh, thank you for listening. And I have to give a shout out to Anatomy of a Scream for being the home of Bodies of Horror. If you're here, I'm sure you're subscribed. But if you haven't already, please make sure to hit subscribe and take a few moments to rate and review. It's so helpful in helping people not only discover bodies of horror, but also all the other amazing shows like Good For Her and such sites to show a limited series about Hellraiser. So really cool listening if you have just watched or are getting ready to watch the new Hellraiser film on Hulu. Um, Lots of great stuff, so it helps folks find those shows as well, which are well worth the listen. So if you want to reach out to me and continue the conversation, please do so. Let me know if there's something uh, on your mind about Day of the Triffids, or if you have a suggestion for a film that you think would be interesting to talk about on the podcast. I love those kinds of messages. You can reach out to me at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. So thank you very, very much. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.